You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our scripture today is John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence and the glory that I had with you before the world existed." Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together. Father, we come to you, bow ourselves before you, and asking that according to the riches of your glory, that you might grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that your Son, Christ, may dwell in our hearts through faith, and as a result of that, that we be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. And you, God, are able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. And so be glorified in your church and through your Son, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we're in John chapter 17. I invite you to go there with me. Um, You know how to discover what somebody really cares about? You know how to discover uh, what a person's passionate about? You listen to them pray. And it's those first words that fall out of their mouth that you know is what's brimming in their heart, overabundantly brimming inside their heart. You know a person cares about based on what they pray, and here we get to hear Jesus pray. Now think about that. Like, that's incredible. Imagine getting to hear Jesus himself pray. That's what we get to do today in John chapter 17, hear Jesus pray. And what we see here is what he's passionate about, what drives him, what makes him tick. These are the first words that fall out of his mouth when he prays. This is what's overbrimming in his heart. Another way to say this is when you cut Jesus, what does he bleed? What comes out of Jesus just if you were to squeeze him? What's his strongest desires? Here they are. You ready? God, his father the glory of his Father. Secondly, you and me, us, having relationship with us. Third, heaven, the hope of heaven, eternity in the Father's presence. So when you cut Jesus, what does he bleed? God, us, and heaven. And I want to say this, God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, enters human history at a point in time where the main model for learning was apprenticeship, where you would follow a rabbi, where you'd follow a leader. You will learn their way, their way of life, their way of thinking, what they were devoted to, and then you would adopt that vision for life as your own and commit to it fully. Jesus, the rabbi, has disciples, and he shows them how to live. He shows them what to be passionate about. He shows them what life is all about. God, relationship with him, and heaven. That's what 
bleeds out of Jesus if you were to cut him. And should be our same passions too, since we are his disciples and since he is our teacher. So first, let's talk about his first passion, his foremost passion, God, his father, verses one and two. Go there with me. It says this, God's word says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, you know, in the gospel of John, the hour always refers to Jesus's upcoming crucifixion his death on the Roman cross. Jesus is looking forward to just very soon, forthcoming very soon, is his death on the cross. That's what's in his mind as he prays, okay? But look what he says next in verse one. Glorify your son. The hour has come, glorify your son. Now listen, that's not a, an ask. He's not asking his father to glorify him. In the Greek, in the original language, this is a command, He's saying, God, my demand is that you glorify me. This doesn't mean make me praised. This doesn't mean make me famous. This doesn't mean make me feel loved. What Jesus means is, God, lift me up on the cross. My my moment of glory has come. All my teaching, all my living, all of my obedience, all of my sacrifice, everything that Jesus has been about for his entire life is about to reach the climactic moment. What it's all been about, it's telos, this moment on the cross. Glorify your son, elevate your son. In John 3, it says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 6, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. So there's this language throughout John of Jesus being lifted up. Jesus being put in a position where he's in our vantage point, looking upward. That's what Jesus has in mind right now. Glorify your son, elevate your son, lift him up. Why though? Why is this his moment of glory? What's so glorious about the cross for Jesus' sake? It's because the cross reveals him as savior and achieves that salvation. The cross is the moment in time where we get a full, clear picture into who Jesus truly is. He is the Savior, and he is achieving that salvation in this moment. This is his moment. This is his glorious, climactic moment of his life. He is Savior. He's bringing about salvation. But here's my question now. The question we ought to ask is, what's driving this aspiration? This, I mean, he, he's demanding, God, glorify your son. I command you, God, lift me up on the cross. What's behind that demand? He has something bursting in his heart that's causing him to, man, to, to command God to bring him to the cross. Here's what it is. If you continue on in verse 1, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus' aim is that through his obedience, more than revealing himself, more than even achieving his task of bringing about salvation, is that the father would be exalted and displayed. Jesus' moment of glory, his whole life leading up to this moment, He says, God, it's not about me. My moment is actually your moment, God. Glorify me, God, so that you might be glorified, so that you might be displayed for who you are. He wants his moment of glory to be the Father's moment of glory. So do you know what's glorious about the cross for the Father? What it shows about the Father? The cross shows the Father's wrath, his holiness, his uncompromising purity. What do you think about the cross? It is the most shameful, pitiful experience in this time that a person could think of. I mean, like, 
Uh, I don't, and I don't mean to be insensitive. I just want to drive home this point. Uh, abuse today and the weight and the, the hurt that comes with it. That would be the sort of associations with the cross in this time. Undergoing abuse, that kind of mistreatment, utterly an experience of shame. But not just that, the cross is also the hammer on the gavel, declaring you are condemned, you are guilty. The cross is also death. It's the end of Jesus' life. The cross, what it does, is it captures all of what we have earned through our sin. What has our sin earned for us? Shame, guilt, and death. The cross shows that God, because he is just, gives us what we deserve. But it also shows his great love. Because instead of getting what we deserved, Jesus got what we deserved. Instead of getting what we have earned, Jesus got what we have earned, and then we get his righteousness, and then we are forgiven, and then we are reconciled. So all at once, the cross glorifies the Father by showing his uncompromising holiness, yet his extravagant, scandalous mercy towards us. It displays the totality of who the Father is, his holiness and his out-of-this-world love for us. So Jesus is saying, Father, lift me up on that cross. I'm going to be obedient even to the point of death, but it's not for my glory. My moment of glory is for your moment of glory, God. I want to show who you are through my obedience. So Jesus is thinking, I must leverage this most important moment in my life to display the fullness of the Father, his justice, and his mercy. And just to show you the seriousness, the resolution of Jesus here to glorify God, that that's his passion in his life. Read verse 2. He says, glorify me so that you might be glorified. Since you have given him the Son authority over all flesh to give life to all whom you have given him. What Jesus is saying here is before the foundations of the earth, there was this agreement between Father and Son that Jesus would move forward, complete the redemptive task, and he'd be given all authority, he'd be supreme over all the world, and that all that the Father wanted to give him, he would receive. There was this agreement between Father and Son. So Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me. I demand that you glorify me so that you are glorified since this is what we have agreed to. This is the promise that you have made to me. So I want to turn back around, God, and give it to you. Well, you have promised to give me authority over all flesh, supremacy over all the world. I want to be all about you, God. I want to be all about you, Father. Now, can we just take a moment here and just revel in Jesus? And just think about how tremendous Jesus is somehow, we have managed to make this man boring. <laughs> Somehow we have managed to make this man just safe, uh, not astounding. Here is an astounding man who is set on spending himself for the sake of the glory of God, not his own glory, who wants to use his glory for a greater glory, the glory of the Father. Who do you know who is willing to take the most important moments of their life, the climax of their life, and use it for the sake of glorifying God and not themselves. 
Jesus is incredible. He is worth modeling our life after he shows us just how worthy God is of our very last and final breath even. It seems to ask yourself here, as disciples of Jesus, right? We're, we're in apprenticeship with Jesus. You have to ask yourself, is my life patterned after Jesus? This is what he models. This, when you cut, this is what he bleeds. This is the first words that fall out of him when he prays. Is this our passion? Is this what our life is patterned after? Do I think God is this worthy? Do I think God is worthy of my greatest moments? Do I live like that? Do I believe that? Let me read to you Psalm 57, 7 through 11. David says this, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Look here, underline this. Awake my glory. You know you have a glory? Did you know that? That you have a weight to you? Uh, something unique to you? You have a glory. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You see how David wants his glory to result not in his glory, but in the Father's glory. Be exalted above all nations, O Lord. Let this be for you. We have a glory. And our glory is meant to be used for the Father's glory. Let me read to you what, um, what one author says, what com- one commentator says about this passage in, uh, in Psalm 57. He says, David's glory was music. He is arguably the greatest mus- musical artist that has ever lived. We still sing his songs as his disco- dis- disco- discography. discography. Is that how you say it? All right. I'm not musical at all, apparently. Is that right, Ben? Is that good? Discography? Okay. Good thing it's behind me. All right. All right. Discography has been canonized. He produced worship services. He wrote songs. He invented instruments. God gives humans glory. It's a culmination of your interests, gifting, skills, time, lean, disposition, family proclivity, schooling, discipline. All of these precious things intersect at this glorious convergence point the highest flower of your being that we describe as your weight, your glory. What David helps us realize is that our glory is the best of who we are, converging with a meaningful moment for the glory of the Father. Cashing in whatever we got, skills, resources, uh, unique talents and abilities, position and influence, cashing in all of those things not for our sake, but for the sake of the Father. That's what it means to pattern our life after Jesus. That's what he would do, and that's what we should do. So we must, when we spend ourselves for the glory of God, we are in conformity with Jesus, who spent himself for the glory of God. Jesus demanded that his glory would be about the Father's glory. The moment of his revelation and achievement were subjected to the purpose of the Father's exaltation. His consuming passion was the glory of God. Is it yours? Is your life purposed in every way for the glory of God? As Jesus' disciples, his passion should be our passion. But it never will be. You won't go this way if you're not convinced of the Father's worth. If you're not convinced 
that he is glorious even more than you. And so the reality of the majesty of God, the beauty of God, the greatness of God, it has to break into your life and just ruin everything. So how is that going to happen? How is God's goodness and majesty and beauty going to break into your life? What will convince you to live for the glory of God? You have to be floored by what Jesus' glory glorifies. You have to be floored by what Jesus' cross reveals about the Father, the fullness of God, who he is in his totality. Here's what you have to be floored by. That God is more dangerous and dreadful than you dare to know, but more merciful and kind than you can ever imagine. Therefore, you are more sinful and condemned and flawed than you know, but more loved than you can ever imagine. You have to be floored by that. And you know what's going to happen when that, when that fire erupts in your heart? You want to live for him. You want every single moment of your life, every breath you have to be for his credit, for his sake, for his exaltation, because you're convinced, I'm not that great. I'm really not that great, but I know who is great. The one who literally saved me from the depths of sin, who pulled me out of the muck and mire and changed my destiny forever. I want to live for him. I want to live like Jesus lived. So Jesus, when you cut him, he bleeds a passion for God, for the Father's glory, and we should too. But when you cut Jesus, he also bleeds a passion for us, a passion to have deep and meaningful and rich relationship with you and I. So in verse 2, he has just said that he gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given. And then he continues to pray in verse 3, and this is eternal life. Do you want to know what eternal life is? This is what Jesus has, has come to achieve for us and give to us. Eternal life. You want to know what it is? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? We tend to think that it's future-oriented completely. It's the afterlife. It's life to come. And that's not wrong. That is certainly what eternal life is. But Jesus here corrects a misconception that eternal life is actually a very present reality, something accessible here and now. And what it feels like, what it's shaped like is relational knowledge of God, the Father, and God, the Son. Life of the age to come, it's stretching back into the present now, and you meet it and experience it by knowing God and knowing his Son. We're talking about relationship with Jesus, like real, daily, sweet communion with him. Have you ever considered the point that your salvation, like the reason why you're saved is not to spare you from hell? I mean, that's a part of it, but it's much more than that. Have you considered that the reason that you're saved is not, you're not saved from something only, but to something, purposed for something? What is that something? It's what the Westminster Confession says. The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you think about your walk with God like that? I get to enjoy him. I get to know him and have sweet fellowship with him day by day. He meets me as I draw near to him. As I humble myself to him, he exalts me. Do you think about your relationship with God like that? That I get to know Father, Son, 
and spirit. That's what Jesus has come to achieve for us. That's what comes out of his heart when he prays. That's what he bleeds when he is cut. That's what he wants for us, to know the one true God and his Son. Unfortunately, we have a lot of competition for our hearts. We have a lot of competition for our devotion and affections. C.S. Lewis says this. I haven't read this in like three years, okay? But I'm bringing it back. Here we go. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The problem is not that we want too much. The problem is not that we're so hedonistic. The problem is not that we're so, what you know, going crazy. The problem is that we are far too easily pleased. We settle because you have been created for God by God. You've not been created for your career by your career. You've not been created for sex by sex. You've not been created for um, the approval of others by the approval of others. You've not been created for those things. And so if you try to make those things ultimate things, to elevate those things to a position that God alone should occupy, what's going to happen? You're only going to be let down. You're only going to get burned, and you're only going to be wearied, and life is going to lose its color. You were created by God for God, and that's what Jesus has come to die to give us and return to us. Union, union with God. And so listen, if you make the mistake of making good things ultimate things, you will miss out on this and you will settle. You are far too easily pleased. Good things like a relationship, good things like children, good things like work, good things like travel. If you make good things ultimate things, you are settling. In fact, it's far worse than that. It will eat you alive. David Foster Wallace was a, an author, uh, and he, he's not a Christian, but he makes this astute and honest observation, just what's self-evident in the world. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, everybody here has got to live for something. Everybody here has, got to, has to have a source of happiness, a source of whether they tap into for real meaning in life and purpose in life. Everybody's got to have that. And so if you don't make Jesus that thing, it will fail you because first it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, you will tell yourself that you have to have it or there is no tomorrow. If anything threatens it, you will become irrationally afraid. If anyone blocks it, you will become inexplicably angry. And if you fail to achieve it, you will never be able to forgive yourself. 
But second, if you make good things ultimate things, if you do achieve that thing, if you do finally have that thing, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you expected and you will be miserable. So I really mean it when I say I, I hope that God does whatever it takes in my life and in your life to ruin everything but him. To just cause us to be so disillusioned with a half-hearted Christianity. A Christianity that just is fine with self-insulation and status quo and settling for idols and settling for making good things, ultimate things. I hope that God ruins anything else but a Christianity that is passionate about knowing the Father, knowing the Son through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So Jesus, when you cut him, he bleeds a passion for you, to walk with you, to know you, to have relationship with you. He has opened up his heart to you. Will you open up your heart to him? And if you do, he will take you to spiritual horizons and depths that you never knew existed. Are you pursuing God as he deserves? Just let that question settle in for a moment and wrestle with that question. Are you pursuing God as he deserves? When you do, you know what happens? You cease having a relationship with God where you're in it because of the benefits. And your relationship with God becomes you're in it because of him. He becomes the benefit. He's no longer treated as a means to an end. You know, how it makes me appear, how it makes me feel, how it, what it does for me. Your relationship with God is transformed to, I'm in it because he is the treasure. Because he is all satisfying. Because he is the prize of life. Where else can I go but him? So, Brimming from Jesus' heart, a passion for the glory of God, a passion for us to walk with him and know him, Father and Son, through the Spirit. Lastly, when you cut Jesus, he bleeds a passion for heaven, a hope for heaven. Verse 4 says this, I glorified you on earth, meaning I revealed you, Father, on earth, and all that I've done, I've revealed you, God. I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So now what? His mission is about to be complete. Now what? Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Remember in verse one, he said, glorify me, God. He demanded that God glorify him. And what he meant was lift me up, elevate me onto the cross. Here in verse five, where he says, God, glorify me. He's saying, God, elevate me to your presence. Bring me back to your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, um, He's saying, God, bring me back to that position that status at your right hand in your presence. Glorify me with the glory that I had before the world existed. So when you cut Jesus, he bleeds a longing for heaven. Now, (laughs) I know the glory of God and having this vibrant, intense relationship with God, these are big, grandiose things to live for. But this one, heaven, out of all these things, it might be the one we're most out of touch with, right? Like, how often do you dream of heaven? How often do you long for heaven? How often do you collect yourself and remember that this life is short and that the pleasures and extravagance and conveniences of this life are just literally here today and gone tomorrow, that there's so much more waiting for us? Do you ever just collect yourself and remember that? I don't. 
You know, I'll be honest with you guys. I'm probably a lot more like my secular neighbors than I am like Jesus in this passage. I'm far more concerned about my money, my comfort, my experiences, fun, than I am about what really matters. Like taking all that I have, all my opportunities, and turning them away from this moment that's fleeting away and investing them in that which will last forever. I just don't know how much of my life is really shaped by the hope that we have that we're going to be in God's glory forever and ever and ever in the 70, 80 years that we have on, in, this, in this world, in this life. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's a drop in the bucket. There's so much more ahead of us. I don't know if I live like that. I don't know if we live like that. Jesus, he longed for it. Why do you think he longed for it? Why do you think when you cut Jesus, what comes out of him is this, this passion for heaven, being back with the glory of the Father? It's because he spent himself day to day serving others, spent himself for the glory of the Father, consistently died to himself. Let his glorious moments be about the glory of the Father. Jesus lived a kind of life that made heaven a reward, that made heaven the end-all, be-all. Jesus' hope was not in this life, in this world, and he lived like it. And it made heaven just electrifying to him. The way that Jesus lived, it made heaven a powerful and gripping hope. And that's why he prays. That's why it falls out of his mouth. That's why, that's what he bleeds when you cut him. Um, we got to have this hope. We have to believe that there's more than this world. There's more than this life. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps in World War II Germany. He's not a believer, but he said there's one difference between people who made it through the camps and people who didn't. The difference was a person had to be shown something to look forward to in the future. He had to be reminded that life still waited for him, that a human being waited for his return. Like we, we all here need to have hope. We all here to get through life need to have something to look forward to. That there's more beyond this present moment and this suffering and this, these hardships. We've got to have hope. Now, the difference between this you know, psychological hope and our hope is that this psychological hope is it's wishful thinking. Because here's what he says next. But after liberation from the camps, there were some men who found that no one waited for them. Woe to him who found that the person whose memory alone had given him courage in camp did not exist anymore. Woe to him who, when the day of his dreams finally came, found it so different from all that he longed for. Perhaps he boarded a trolley, traveled out to the home for which he had seen for years in his mind, and only in his mind pressed the bell, just as he had longed to do in thousands of dreams, only to find that the person who should open the door was not there and never would be there again. Biblically, when we talk about hope, the hope for heaven, the hope for resurrection, it's not wishful thinking. It is like biblically the word hope is certainty. You will not be disappointed. Why? Why won't we be disappointed? Why should heaven be our hope that gets us through life? It's because Jesus has already blazed the trail. He's already gone before us. He longed for heaven and he went to the cross, goes to the tomb, resurrects from the tomb, and now he waits for us and he has made a home for us. And he, and he waits for us. He's prepared a place for us. We have the promise of heaven, the promise of resurrection. 
So do you let your heart turn heavenward? Do you let your fatigue turn your heart to heaven? Are the passions of your life making heaven a sweet prize? So, you cut Jesus. What does he bleed? Hebrews 12.1 says this. Read this with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before him, looking to Jesus, right? Patterning our life after Jesus. And what is Jesus' model? He's the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. What was the joy that was set before Jesus that just pushed him through life to the cross, to the grave, to the presence of God? What was the joy before Jesus? The glory of God. You and me ransoming us, having us return to him, reconciled relationship in heaven itself. It's not one of these things, it's all of these things. That's the joy set before him. Is it the joy set before you? God's glory, living for him, the only one who is worthy, the only one who won't overpromise and underdeliver, having vibrant, intense relationship with him and looking heavenward and hoping in heaven. So when you're cut, what do you bleed? When you're cut, what do you bleed? A passion for your favorite football team? maybe, your kids, your money, your dreams, your social media presence. Look, those things are fine. Those things aren't bad, but they're awful gods. They're good, good things. They're terrible, ultimate things. Nothing else will match God. Nothing else will satisfy you, and nothing else comes close to the constellation of heaven. God, us, and heaven. That's what we should build our lives on. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.